0: We're we're headed for a world where just by sitting in front of a computer, it will be constantly measuring your vital signs. And your doctor can have a record and be exposed to that all the time, not just when you come in to have it done.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Trusick, your host, and my co-host, of course, is Brett King. Hi, Brett. Hey, hey. This week, we've got a great guest, a longtime friend and an expert in artificial intelligence, Dr. Philip Elvelda. Uh, we're going to get into a great conversation with him about AI and some of the implications of the rapid advances in AI. But before we jump into that, Brett, do you want to do the news? News from the yeah. future.
2: Meta gets a lot of grief at the moment, but uh, if if you know that game called Diplomacy, 2AI um, mm-hmm. is built by Facebook. Faith- Facebook's parent company Meta ha, have outperformed humans in playing diplomacy, which is interesting because we saw um, Deepmind um, you know the the Google pl- platform um, beat uh, AlphaGo a few years mm-hmm. ago, but that's uh, you know we're starting to see a broader range of um, gaming activities come into this. Um, also some new research suggests that human hibernation is possible um and so uh, this could be interesting for uh, long duration space flight and things like that you know we know a lot of other animals uh, do hibernate um but there is some scientific possibilities coming out that we could put uh, humans into a state of hibernation um and also um uh, you know there is obviously concern around the climate of uh, certain nations. One of the nations that impact of this is Greenland, and it's uh, the Greenland ice sheet may even be more sensitive to uh, global warming than scientists first uh, uh, first thought. So um, this is the world's second largest ice sheet, and um, it's losing an average of two hundred fifty billion metric tons of ice per year. So we're going to be watching this uh, to see see what happens. But this is Uh, This is a worrying trend.
1: This is a really amazing thing. I've had the opportunity to be on glaciers in Alaska and in Norway. And I have to tell you, when you stand on a glacier and you see the amount of water gushing out from under your feet, like, you know, a thousand fire hoses worth of water just gushing out. You're like, you realize, wow, this stuff is melting really, really fast. So, yeah, that'll, uh, that'll affect some of the things we talked about in a previous episode. Climate change, the warming of the oceans, the rising of the oceans and so forth. Um, well, let's introduce Philip. So, Philip uh, Philip is a friend I've had for a long time. Uh, someone I respect deeply. We met in the mobile industry back in the early days when people were trying to figure out how to use a mobile phone for more than text messages and voice calls. Uh, and since that time, he's gone on to anticipate a number of different fields, uh, changes in fields, and uh, new technologies. And he's often been at the forefront of them. Uh, So he's a real
2: futurist. That's what you're
1: saying. That's it. He's our kind of futurist because he doesn't just talk about it and say like, that's going to happen next or someday in the future. He actually gets busy and goes and makes it happen. Uh, Today, Philip is the CEO and chairman of Medio Labs, M-E-D-I-O Labs, where he's using applied artificial intelligence uh, to medical, uh, medical problems. And is it imaging that you're doing, or are you doing, uh, what what Uh, kinds of things?
0: Range of of applications, using cameras to measure vital signs, as well as, uh, amplify, uh, molecular diagnostics for better
1: clinical testing. Wow. Great. Well, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Robert. Um, Always a pleasure. And I know Brett's going to be keen to talk to you because our topic is going to be artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And um uh so so give us a sense today of uh how AI is being used in um in the medical and health fields, because obviously media is one of the companies, but there's there's literally like a hundred different companies using yeah, AI. Yeah,
0: it's uh, you know, healthcare in general uh has been one of the industrial areas that I think um because of the infrastructure, the bureaucracy, the the care for patient safety, all of these things have, have served to make it. Um, a very process-bound industry, uh, and that of course makes it hard to to innovate and disrupt. Um, and so I think that that there is just when when we were looking to find you know we have a new, some new you know uh, application capabilities in AI. Where is there a huge pent market just ripe for being disrupted, and and it could really benefit from the new technologies. You start to like just rack up dollars every time you turn to a medical application. You know, we looked mm-hmm. at energy, healthcare, care, ed, education, um, transportation, uh, it, just name it. And we, we looked at all sorts of applications. But every time you pull up a medical application, even just one, you know, mm-hmm. can we do something to improve, you know, um, uh, vital sign detection, trillion dollar market. How about, wow. you know, drug discovery, trillion dollar market. How about uh, improving uh, cancer drugs and screening, trillion dollar market. So, you know, for an entrepreneur that aspires to have big impact, uh, everywhere you turn around in medicine, you know, there seems to be just huge opportunities to make big change. But um, some big course,
1: roadblocks, too, in terms of bureaucracy uh, and regulation. Yes, right? well, that, that a... of
0: course, um, that unfortunately is the, uh, is the drawback of the medical market, is that it is heavily regulated. You can't kill people when you're experimenting, uh, and not uh, even a little bit.
1: Yeah. Not, no, that's bad. That's bad. But you know, another uh, way to frame the opportunity is that healthcare is both bloated in terms of its cost structure and incredibly inefficient, and it's a terrible consumer experience. Well, All three of which say it's a industry. It's ripe for. Disruption. I mean, we
2: we we talk about this in in um you know my co-author and I talked about this in the rise of techno-socialism, and we estimated that we could reduce the the total national cost of healthcare in the United States by somewhere. Have been between fifty and seventy percent over the next twenty to thirty years through the use of artificial intelligence, attacking diagnosis, uh, attacking administrative costs. Um, you know, then you've got gene therapy and um, you know better sensors and all of those sort of things leading to that. But essentially, because you are you start treating um, you you start treating the data rather than treating the symptom because you get a better yeah. picture of of, of well, health. Moving forward, there's a there's a really
0: interesting transition, I think, that underlies the opportunity, you know, many of these opportunities. And and the transition is that, you know, historically, diagnostics have always been rather complicated and uncertain. And when you have those two characteristics, you have this entire industry that grows around it where you can't just tell someone the what the result of, of an yeah. old diagnostic test is. You need the, the nurses to make sure that it's done properly. You need the clinic where that has the equipment. You need the doctors that can interpret the results and 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 kind of stand as a, a translator and a sage to assist when these complicated results come back. What do they really mean for a patient with that particular history? Um, and so... You know, that whole process has made a giant industry that, as you said, bloated with overhead and process to protect the patient, to have good patient outcomes, all well-intentioned, nonetheless, really expensive. But, but I think that we see the glimmers of change now. And ironically, uh, it took a pandemic to tell us. <laughs> you know, it's one of those, you know, in crisis lies opportunity and, you know, really quite a crisis. But really, a big opportunity too, and and I think that um, you know many people have have kind of realized telemedicine. Of course, kind of came into its own in, in the pandemic when people realized you know going for a procedure to the place where everyone goes to be treated for COVID maybe isn't your best move. Uh, you know to maintain your own health. There are uh, sick and So telemedicine, there. you know, thumbs up. So, so obviously, huge growth there. Right. But but I think there was a more important transition that um we now were authorized by the CDC to take a new generation of clinical tests that were so definitive not ambiguous at all do you have covid how many viral particles do you have per milliliter of your blood yeah this this Believe was exactly how many yeah. and so so with that precision of the new assays came the ability to do direct to consumer testing with no doctor involved no clinic no nurses just direct-to-consumer health care. Now, there was some genuflection to, to the FDA to involve a doctor that they have to sign the things off, but I think that anyone that starts to look at you know, volume testing at a LabCorp or a Quest Diagnostics will see that with the volume of tests and the rate at which they do it, the doctors have like 0.03 seconds per test to approve them. So there's clearly no doctor approving all of those tests. There's a mechanism to review them in bulk, and you know they're they're you know they're you know analyzed after the fact, but but in the process of actually doing the test and delivering the data, no human involvement necessary at all. Um, so so I think that um, you know this of course is where we saw an opportunity for our company Mediolabs. Labs. Uh, to take um, kind of AI enhancements and new ways to use not just our ability to read genomes and, and search for unique snippets of DNA that might be you know the 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 harbingers of you know any one pathogen like we have a sequence that's unique to COVID and we can we can read the molecules in your blood and we can tell you if that gene sequence is there uh, and say yes you have COVID or no and, and how many you know what's your concentration or your or your effective uh, you know uh, uh, level of, of virus in your blood. um, And we can respond. Um, But we can also use new tools to do really bizarre things that people never anticipated. Now we can use our ability to synthesize strings of DNA. So we can program a specific code in a string of DNA, and we can attach it to your patient sample. Well, what good is that? Well, it turns out that when we can make a barcode out of DNA and attach it chemically, we can get rid of all the paper barcodes and all the bottles. And we just batch everything together, sequence it all, and do tens of thousands of samples in one sequencing room. So, you know, the ability to take these new gene engineering tools and not just read, but write. Uh, hugely powerful, and we're just scratching the surface
1: of what's possible there. Is that what but you're you know, doing today at MedioLabs? That Labs? is that is what we're doing today at MedioLabs. Oh wow! Because last so, time we spoke, you were you know this is pre-pandemic. You were focused on non-invasive, like no-touch uh, diagnostics. Yeah, being able to get vital yeah, so signs we, just by looking at someone. Now we still have that business, uh, but you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of
0: pandemic needs, you know, to know what your vital signs was one thing, but to know whether or not you have COVID turned out
1: to be a little more important. Uh, so what you're doing now, you need a blood sample, right? Uh, saliva. Oh, oh, saliva. Oh, so wow. just so it's really a not, little too. Yeah, not invasive, and can this be done by this is the new general? microfluidics, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So was it was a question, Robert? You can be doing this at home or do you need to go yes, to the lab?
0: Absolutely. We, we've done, we just did, you know, we,
1: we shipped, uh, you know, thousands of kits to college students before they came back from, uh, from summer break. And we're going to do the same for Thanksgiving. Oh, uh, and you can gang all those different results together into a single sequence, a single batch that you can then sequence. And, and run
0: it, run it all at once at extremely low cost. So you can kind of imagine our vision. So our, our our vision, of course, is every quarter we're adding more drugs to test with that one sample. Yeah. Uh, and more, more, more pathogens. So, so in the st- next, next generation of tests, isn't just COVID it's COVID plus influenza plus
1: RSV plus pneumonia. But uh, the way you gang it up with a bunch of different people at once, that's how you reduce the cost. So you're not having to That's do right. So we, could, we can, we can gang a bunch of, bunch
0: of people at once. We can gang a bunch of pathogen targets at once. And the result is that the cost of these tests go way, way down with no loss in precision.
1: Now, let's put um, so, this in perspective for people. So like when I go to the doctor's office, they always take my vital signs, right? The nurse comes out and she measures my height, takes my blood pressure and so forth, temperature. What does it cost uh, a healthcare provider? What's their cost to provide just that service, just the vital signs?
0: You know, typically that would be for about $200 to $300 once you amortize all the costs.
1: Wow. So, like, this is expensive for the healthcare provider, and of course, yeah. eventually that cost gets. Well, they, they need, you know,
0: think think about everything that they need in the value chain, right? They have to, they have to train the nurses and doctors. They got to hire them. They need a facility. They got the machinery, you know, get the rent, every the space, and you know, everything. So, we're we're headed for a world where just by sitting in front of a computer, it will be constantly measuring your vital signs, and your doctor can have a record and be exposed to that all the time, not just when you come in to have it done. Yeah. And we think, see, this is this I think is the key to where I, artificial intelligence I see has a huge amplifying effect. If we can use the efficiencies of AI to reduce the cost and the friction of doing these things, and and really that was our vision in looking at the the um, the vital sign measurement piece, was can we make it compensate for the differences in cameras? Can we make it compensate for any camera on a mobile phone? Can we make it compensate for the lighting in your home? Um, you know, how are you likely to use it? Uh, and having done that, you know, we were able to achieve, you know, clinical grade accuracy using these tools. Then it can run on your phone. It can run on your TV while you're sitting there watching it. You know, the smart TVs with the cameras, it can run on your laptop. Um, and then, of course, you can imagine applications in assisted living facilities, uh, as well as telehealth, you know, monitoring, etc. But, but the key, the key for us, the key realization was today because that diagnostic function is so expensive. Whether it's testing for COVID or you know measuring your heart health, you only do it after you have a heart attack or a stroke, yeah. or after you have symptoms. You go to check: is this COVID? But but the power of lowering the cost down to the level where we could do it as an automatic screening ahead of time. That transforms it to something, you know, from something you do in a crisis, preventative a problem, to yeah, something yeah. that you do regularly as
2: part of a natural screening process. That that's the potential, right? Because, um, but it it means that we have to change our posture for for healthcare from being something that is, you know, chase the symptom and try and figure it out, to actually the most effective form of healthcare management becomes this this subscription based health maintenance approach. You know, I think um but that require you know there are some Economies that will change, I think, faster to that style of system. But changing the U.S. system around that, I, I see as fraught with all sorts of uh, issues. You know, um, from a from a, a industry structural perspective. But that that's yeah. the most logical outcome of it's, what you're pursuing. It's, it's no true.
0: I I think I think you're right. I, from from my you know, uh, admittedly uh, limited exposure to the healthcare system, uh, it, it is entirely cost driven and revenue driven i should say a Health healthy
1: profits driven by money in health getting out <laughs> yeah. yeah but the approach you're talking about will dramatically reduce costs so just to go yes. back to the example of the you know the nurse taking your vital signs which can cost up to $200 just for the healthcare company not what they charge for so one you visit you. that's one yeah. visit yeah um what what give us a comparable so how does medio labs uh what what like how, how much do you knock down that cost that $200 well of- a
0: lot it turns out uh, <laughs> okay. you know, for, for us to uh you know we we just we just built um uh you know a, a couple summers ago we built a new system to do it uh using uh, amazon's lambda serverless architecture uh, and we calculated that the cost of uh 24/7 monitoring uh all our costs including the bandwidth the storage everything to monitor one person 24/7 uh for a month would be about 70 cents
1: Oh wow. So it's a gigantic you're knocking off a couple of dollars. This is so the know, moonshot. A couple of digits off of that. This is the moonshot type. Yeah. So something going to. The, and the
0: math and the math for the clinical diagnostics is similar. You know, when when the when the first COVID tests came out, uh, you know, they were going for around $250, 300 dollars a test. Yeah. You know, today, you know, if you're a school district and you'll sign up for a couple million tests, you can get it for as low as twenty dollars. But, when that, we talk- but that's non-diagnostic, okay? So be a little careful. Okay. So non-diagnostic screening test, twenty bucks. Uh, but long term, for us, you know,
2: the major cost component for us is going to be the little plastic vial that you spit in. So so when we talk about broader diagnostics, um, you know, uh, and and the impact of AI, um, you know, you're talking about this, you know, this concept of microfluidics and and so forth, which we we won't get into Theranos, but but the 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 um, concept of um ai based diagnostics particularly a, 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 you know from machine learning perspective is that it takes all of that human learning compresses that down into a model that that's better more consistent like taking all of that human learning to get better consistency but you're talking really about imaging and processing here as being the core advantage right well you know it's i, I would say that
0: um, there there's a big difference depending on what the diagnostic test tells you uh, if the diagnostic is, you know, kind of confused and highly technical and uses terms and numbers that patients aren't able to understand, um, you know, that that requires all the expertise of the human to be distilled. But the, but the key point that I want to raise is the new tests aren't like that. They are definitive. They will tell you what you have and how badly in completely plain language. Wow. Uh, you know, you did your panel of six tests, you don't have these five things, you got this one thing, and it's, you know, this bad. Um, so, so there's little, there's little room for the human piece and there's more need for kind of the mathematical and the, and the statistical analysis of the data that's coming out of your diagnostic equipment. So for us, you know, we, we instead of going a yes, no, you know, uh, threshold answer, we actually have a scad of data coming out of the gene sequencer that no one today is really using. So the, the right. opportunity for AI is to harness all of that data and give you more accurate, more general more precision, yeah. Diagnostics overall. So, no, no, no Philip, I got,
1: I got to interject here because I know that folks listening to this are going to be thinking that sounds cool, but you're talking about watching, surveilling, monitoring me 24 hours a day. And that sounds a little scary because that sounds I like got no issue with state. it, Robert. And, um, <laughs> And so, you know, I just want to point out that I wear this thing all the time. This is an Apple yeah. Watch. Uh, I'm very happy to wear it, and it's constantly tracking if, my health. If you're worried titles, about sending up my Apple but I'm okay with that. Gotta, I don't have an is issue. That with that it.
0: The, you've you've already given away your privacy, Robert. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm cool. Well, when driver. you've got a
1: phone, yeah, exactly. And Apple sends me notifications periodically to say, like, you know, try this there are other people like you with similar, you know, similar health uh, habits and similar fitness habits, and so on. here's some of the things they've experienced. I don't mind it because it looks like they're looking out for me. Right. They're using information to help me prevent disease. And I think that's okay. I'm I'm willing to make that trade off. But but tell me, I want to hear your perspective on this concept of AI surveillance, because that's where we're going later in the show. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I do think,
0: uh, you know, we are all being surveilled as we speak um, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, I think, you know, what I would like to see is a little bit more transparency from companies on what their policies of data use retention are, and, and not just in the fine print of the EULA, but in a more public explanation of, of what they take seriously and what are they protecting. Um, you know, as a, as a general rule today, I trust Apple more than I trust Facebook, for example, yeah. uh, because they're very clear about, you know, your your biometric data never leaves your phone. Um, and, you know, this is the way we design things at Medio Labs. Yes, we use the camera to read your vital signs, but there's no image or identifying information that goes out of the system, you know, back to the cloud front end. It's really just deeply encoded stuff about your vital signs that no one else knows how to read. So, you know, we're actually in a good place to get and surveil and store that data without violating your privacy. But okay. but you're right, it has to
1: be it has to be built into the architecture of the system to be trustworthy. And and there has to be some transparency to it. This is one of the problems. Facebook is constantly revising its end user license agreements, So we don't really know what they stand for. Uh, We're going to get into some of the dark sides or maybe some of the speculative uh, uh, potential after the break. But before we go to the break, we always like to do this thing where we ask our guests to answer some rapid fire questions. And this is Brett's expertise. So get ready, Philip, for the lightning round. Here goes. What was the first science
2: fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or by books?
0: Uh, I opened a box of books in in the attic of my house that my dad had stashed away. And I read a book by A.E. Van Vogt called Slam, which was awesome. It was about the future of a genetically engineered human. This is like 1967. I want to say 1971, 1972, a genetically engineered human uh who was going to be the next step in evolution, uh, but had been mostly exterminated, and he was one of the last remaining trying to escape from the humans, tracking him down.
2: Interesting. Um, name a futurist or entrepreneur that has influenced you and why?
0: Robert Tersek has influenced oh. me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I, you know, uh, joking aside, I did I remember the presentation that you gave. Um, at USC, uh, where Lucy Hood and some of the other folks were there in attendance uh, about cognitive dissonance in the future. Uh, and I love that presentation. Um, and, and I, you know, it was one of those moments where I saw someone thinking so clearly about kind of the confusions of the past and where did it lead. Uh, and the presentation style was very captivating for me. So you, awesome. you were really an influence there, Robert. Um, yeah. You know, Robert aside, who would I say? Futurist. Um, I'm going to point out David Brin. Uh, another funny story. Uh, I know he, he's been one of the, one of your guests, yeah. but, uh, you know, I, also in the 70s, not long after I read Slam, uh, I read his book, Star Tide Rising, the one that won both Hugo and Nebula yes. Awards that year, yes. um, about the uplifted intelligent species. Uh, and I had the deep pleasure of being at DARPA when the research came out that uh, actually convinced me that it was possible to uplift a species now. Uh, and so I sent him an email Tell and, and, and just awesome. email. I never met the guy he would have loved that. I sent him he a cold email uh, and said hey you know I just wanted to let you know I've been a fan since the 70s uh, and uh, and I think it's possible to do what you set out uh, awesome. and here are the research papers and the 34 genes that can influence your intelligence and the six genes that can influence your uh, vocal cord and, and speech box shape uh, to allow speech uh, and uh, I don't know if DARP is ready to support it but I think it's possible <laughs> Awesome. awesome. <laughs> and, uh, long story short, you know, he responded., uh, he came to visit us at DARPA, gave some great talks, and uh, uh, and um, yeah, he's a good guy, uh, and then we've been we've been fast friends ever since.
2: Um, what's the best prediction that you can remember that an entrepreneur or a futurist or a sci-fi author has made?
0: Wow, best prediction. That's a tough one. Most people are really shitty at it. I you know, I think I think it's I, I'm gonna back off of that one and okay. say that I admire the people that invent the future rather than rely
1: on okay, good. We're gonna take a quick, we'll be back with our guest, Philip Alvelda.
2: Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. Uh, I'm your host, Brett King, and Rob Tersek in the hot seat. Now, Philip Elve- Elvelda is our guest this week. But before we dive back into the world of AI and DARPA and MedTech and um, you know sci-fi and all this sort of stuff, uh, Rob, what have you got on the deep dive side? News from the future. So
1: today we've got some news from the future that is about intellectual property theft. At least that's where it starts. Uh, For centuries, of course, this has been going on. Rising nations like to take intellectual property secrets from the dominant nations. And the United States is no exception. In the 19th century, the fledgling United States really helped itself to the intellectual property and secrets of the then dominant U.K., but today the tables have turned. Uh, what's happening now is that China has been accused of stealing intellectual property from the United States. State secrets, uh, government uh, information, blueprints for lots of high technology and weapon systems, uh, also from uh, from private corporations. Um, and so uh, these allegations have been building up for quite some time. The United States has used a lot of different techniques to try to persuade China to stop this practice, Um, but you know China's done is they've been able to avoid that, and also they use shell companies uh, outside China to obtain uh, technology that are sometimes off limits for them. Um, So this has been done in the service of strategic goals, and this is very clear cut in the sense that uh, the 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 leader of China, the president of the People's Republic of China, uh, Xi Jinping has consistently signaled his intention for his nation to emerge as a scientific and technology leader in the 21st century. This is a primary goal. And according to President Xi, this is necessary for national security reasons and to avoid becoming, in his words, the technological vassal of other countries. And that's going to be a key point, because what happened this week is some pretty significant news in the United States, um, artificial intelligence is a key piece of the Chinese strategy for technology uh, supremacy. Um, it's important for their national security and for their military advances, um, and. Um, the Chinese government has invested billions at the national level and at the state or province level. Uh, they've invested billions in AI technology, and there's been a real rapid rise in the number of research papers that have been published, for instance, by Chinese authors. They, uh, they're Animal publishing times. More patents. That's exactly right. finally more yeah. patents as well. That's right. Uh, and this, this is central. Like this mission towards uh, AI supremacy is central to the Chinese uh, ambitious plan that is known as Made in China 2025. It's sort of a central focus for that. Uh, so, so far, how have the Chinese used AI technology? Mostly for domestic control. China has been described as a techno surveillance state or techno security state They deployed artificial intelligence surveillance systems that span entire cities and every level of communication in China. Um, But recently, China has shifted from this more or less defensive and internal focused state. Uh, They've shifted to more defiant um, offensive strategy, and that's aimed at projecting Chinese military power into the Asia-Pacific region, as well as outer space and into cyberspace, into the digital domain. Um, Now, it's important to know that uh, Xi Jinping actually holds three positions in the Chinese uh, government, uh, and and that is as as General Secretary, uh, he is the, sorry, as Secretary General, he's the head of the Communist Party. As president, he is the head of state. And as chairman of China's Central Military Commission, he commands the country's armed forces So he controls those three positions in the U.S. That would be like the president being the head of the party that elected him, as well as, you know, the head of state and the commander in chief. So it's not that different. But there has been this tendency of China to mingle uh, private enterprise and military. And that's at the crux of the issue that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, President Xi is likely to retain all three of these titles. Right now, there is a um, the 20th Communist Party National Congress is happening in Beijing, and it's largely viewed as kind of a coronation ceremony where President Xi will get an unprecedented uh, third five-year term as president. uh, And he'll probably continue in all three roles. That's what's expected to happen any day now. So in the midst of all this, the United States has has introduced uh, new policy controls, a new set of policies. uh, They were announced by the Biden administration and they're gonna be very impactful. Uh, These policies our design and the the announcement was designed to inject uncertainty and element of drama into the chinese uh communist party congress uh what was otherwise going to be this you know very sedate and stately uh coronation ceremony for the president there uh we we kind of threw a monkey wrench into the works The new export control policy is designed to curb China's ambitions in artificial intelligence by strictly limiting the export of chips and software, as well as the technology to design and manufacture advanced semiconductors. So we're cutting them off from not just the software and the chips themselves, but the ability to manufacture those. Uh, And um, effectively, this is a notice from the United States government that we intend to freeze China's ability to make next generation AI microprocessors while the us continues to maintain it it's, it's like suggesting that we can stop the internet well well you should see what happens because uh, i think i think this policy is actually really comprehensively constructed now for years uh, uh, critics in both parties have complained that the us doesn't have a very effective strategy for dealing with china um, a new report from the center for strategic and international studies that's csis.org uh, provides a comprehensive analysis of this of these policies it identifies four policy chokeholds the first two chokeholds are designed to prevent China from gaining access to high-end chips. So the first thing is uh, companies like NVIDIA may no longer export high-end microprocessors or semiconductors to China uh, that cuts off their access to the chips that are made in the U.S., but it also blocks their access to the software systems that are known as EDA, Electronic Design Automation. That's to prevent China from designing their own chips. Um, all three manufacturers of that software are based in the United States, so it's a strict export that, that may no longer go through. Um, it's subject to a, a licensing agreement, but the default position is that that will be denied. That that uh, licensing will be denied. Now, this is explicitly designed to put 28 Chinese chip design and supercomputing companies out of business, um, and, and and a number of them have ceased production right now. Uh, so as of as of the, the past week, uh, the Yangtze Memory Company uh, AMAT LMAMC ICRD Hafez, CXMT, DRAM uh, fab, and several other uh, chip fabs have ceased, they've been paralyzed by this because all US personnel, all service personnel and all supplies have been cut off. Now there is a workaround around those two uh, those two export controls I mentioned, and it's the workaround that Huawei has been using, because Huawei's uh, their own chip company has been under a similar set of sanctions or prohibitions for a couple of years. And they found a workaround, which involves getting a pirate copy of that EDA software, so they can continue to design chips. And then they try to hack out their own fab and build it themselves. Uh, so the second, the the third, and fourth policies are designed explicitly for that, and those cut off access to any U.S. built equipment to manufacture semiconductors and all U.S. components for such equipment. Now, it might sound like, okay, so they can get these parts anywhere, but it turns out that that's not the case. The U.S. has a 70-year advantage here in terms of our ability to manufacture semiconductors, and we're simply cutting China off from all of that. So they're going to have to replicate that, which is a very tall order. It's unlikely they'll be able to do it. So uh, the CSIS report concludes... Without components, China's efforts to develop a a domestic semiconductor industry would be starting from scratch and attempting to replicate the cumulative achievements of the U.S. semiconductor industry over the past seven decades. It is an extremely tall mountain to climb." Moreover, the United States is also doing something which is you're seeing more and more signs of uh, extraterritorial legislation or regulation, which is to say that any company outside the United States that continues to trade with China will find themselves cut off. They'll be under the exact same export controls. So that's meant to deter companies from, say, if the Chinese design their own chips, uh, they won't be able to send that abroad for someone else to manufacture. The U.S. is
2: terrified of China. It It must uh, be.
1: Yes. So, I mean, you could say that you can certainly say that we are concerned about the Chinese military threat. And uh, obviously, you know, the experience right now in the Ukraine uh, with autonomous systems and drones probably has created more concern about Chinese military use of AI. There's no doubt about that. But this is also this has been building for years. The Chinese have been doing an increasing set of uh, provocations over the past few years, Uh, you know, not just the theft of intellectual property. But
2: they're just using the U.S. playbook. I mean, think about what the U.S. did with Japan and all of that in the 70s. I mean, that was this, uh, the, you know, what did the U.S. Even, do with Japan? Well, you know, U.S. used to uh, steal IP from Japan all the time. Of course, you know, um, US- you look at look wow. at Operation Paperclip at the end of the Second World War. You know, U.S. going in trying to get all the German rocket scientists, you know, and that's yeah. how we started I, NASA. You
0: I, know. I could take a I could take a contrary role here, too, Robert. I, I think that. Um, you know, if you look at the type of sanctions that they're trying to apply, yeah. um, you know, the first question I'd ask is, you know, where do you think the most important uh, semiconductor manufacturing comes from?
1: Well, what, Taiwan, what of course, right?
0: Nope. Nope. It's a Dutch company, ASML.
1: Oh, they yeah, the manufacturing. They make yeah. a stepper
0: that, uh, that, that does the ultra-miniaturized, you know, UV line width yeah, yeah. Uh, lines that make the
1: advanced technology nodes. But US subject, company. they're subject to these controls.
0: Well, they are, but you know, if they cut off the US, the US is screwed too. Right. So they can say, let us ship to China or we won't ship it to you. Well, they that's have the No, that,
1: that that point, I, I don't differ with that either. either there of there you, is so.
0: no there is no competing company for that source.
1: So that's right, probably they are, the They are forcing companies to choose sides. They are forcing companies to yeah. so say you're either with us and you're going to help the United States maintain AI yeah. supremacy, or you're going to go with China and then you're against us, right? That's clearly what the US is doing.
0: I think, I think that's the intent. I don't know if it's going to work because, you know, so much of the rest of the value chain has been diversified for this very reason. Uh, you know, other, con- other countries don't want the sole source risk. Uh, and so, you know, most of the equipment you think of evaporators, steppers, patterners, um, you know, ion implantation machines, all those things that are critical to semiconductor manufacturer. Yes. You know, U.S. has a good market share. And yes, you might argue that in some of the areas we've got some of the better equipment, but we're no longer the only source. And so I think, you know, the, the, it's going to be key, you know, to, you know, require uh, and, and have some mechanism to enforce you know foreign cooperation,
1: but well, you know, I would, even so, I, 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 this I is almost an unprecedented weaponization of U.S. export control. If, never we, been done. if we would do, if we
2: were putting the same amount of effort into export controls as we were into regulation of artificial intelligence, it would be an entirely different world. You know, and this is yeah, I, don't,
0: I don't I'm like, not a big believer in that regulation either. I mean, the, the big problem with regulation is that the rate that AI moves uh, laws just are too slow to keep up. True. And the people enforcing the regulation don't have enough technical wherewithal to even come up with regulatory regimes that make any sense. I mean, the 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 um, the, the European regulations, uh, you know, on on Internet content in particular are laughable. Um for that reason. But I, but I think, you know, the the issue that I have with China is that, you know, that, that piece that you just read, Robert, I think that uh, in many ways, it is the view of the government. This is what the government would like to have happen. It's not necessarily what industry wants to have happen. And I, and I think that, you know, there's a, there's a sad reality that um, there are many companies in the United States that are way closer to China. And interestingly, the Chinese government than they are to the U.S. government. Why? Because the Chinese government, through the Chinese partners, has subsidized their businesses, mm-hmm. and to uh, to a massive degree. And 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 I count uh, Apple as one of them. Uh, but they're not the only one. You know, yeah, any Apple's going to Apple's going to have to stop
2: manufacturing phones and laptops in China. Tesla's going to have to stop manufacturing vehicles there.
1: I mean, uh, no, 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 right. no, 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 no. That's but, completely incorrect. Sorry, that's just so not accurate. Let me get. Let me clarify that. This but, is literally but, but hang on. an export control of no, semiconductors. It, That's all. Yeah, it's but not your ever, semiconductors it's not are used in all of all of the construction of those. Items. These are these are a very specific set of semiconductors. They're very high-end semiconductors for artificial intelligence. Uh, so that is not gonna is not gonna stop Tesla or Apple from manufacturing. This is not accurate. However, it is very likely that China will retaliate with, with some sort of export controls of its own, or they may not allow American companies to import into their market.
0: Yeah, well I, I think the 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 bigger, and more likely consequence is that um they're gonna want the high performance semiconductors. And and look, you know, China is the king of volume. You tell me you can't have the latest semiconductor from NVIDIA, they'll back off a generation and buy twenty thousand of them instead of 10. So, you know, I, I think that that
1: um Yeah, they're already they whacked that NVIDIA share Price. price.
0: Yeah, well, they, yeah. they can they can they, they have ways of getting around those types of things temporarily. And in the long run, what you're encouraging them to do is to develop their own ecosystem that's apart from the United States.
2: Exactly. exactly. Not, Which they are clearly doing, right?
1: This is clearly right. a response to that thing that you just said. Uh, it's that China has 28 companies that are moving along rapidly, right? Right. Sometimes with their own initiative and sometimes by borrowing other people's yeah, well, ideas. But but, I'll, but I but also think there's a little bit of the U.S.
0: hubris involved in the policy, too, Agreed. because, you know, it, it's it's it, it incorporates several statements of how we are ahead and we want to cut them off from getting that lead. And if you look at AI applications in China, I mean, you focused on the military ones, um, you know. Last time I was in Pudong, was it a surveillance society? It was not obvious at all. There was, there was no one around me, um, no one I talked to, no one we interacted with that was in any way affected by the surveillance. Uh, they were just carrying on their lives. It was like uh, being in Cupertino, other sure, than there that, were would be, that would be that would
1: be true in Zhejiang or in Tibet, for instance, uh, where you'd be very, very evident, right? So but this, so this, this, but this is.
2: But but part of this, uh, you know, and I agree with Philip here. But part of this conversation that we have at the U.S. level is, uh, you know, a, a is propaganda. Frankly, you know, I've lived in China, and yeah. I've never I've never felt. That it's a, a surveillance society. I've felt in um, many places in China, I have felt much safer than I do in the United States. Well, it's state
1: going to be safer than the United well, States, of course. Because right? of, that, of that's their surprise. The, well,
2: instead no, of allowing, no, no. Every, you know, I mean, wh- why is it that the US has more violent crime? Second Amendment. You know, I mean, so there are. There's way more. There's
0: way more i mean They're there's right. way more police presence in the US than i ever saw in china yeah. but but i think um you know it, it's an interesting question for me because you know we we see kind of this hubris in policy also in the covid epidemic um not necessarily related to ai directly but you know where there's huge judgment of the policies of locking people up and denying them their freedoms but if you look at the total number of people and calculate the total hours they've been locked up it's much lower than the the total amount here in the united states and their economy has been open for more of the pandemic than ours because they were effective at stopping growth early, and we are not. So it's, it's a it's a, yeah, it's a you've really heard that, uh,
2: you've heard that. Sorry, go ahead. Um, you've heard that thing from um, the newsroom, right? The U.S. leads uh, leads the world in only three areas, right? The number of incarcerated citizens, the amount of spending on defense, and the number of people who believe in angels,
1: right? So. <laughs>
0: That's right
1: uh let's broaden broaden out a little bit then what are the things that we should be concerned about about ai and the growth of ai if if this is not the issue and i'll grant you that u.s policy has a habit of backfired on us so i have no doubt about that Uh, so tell me a little bit about where you we think we should be concerned
0: you know I, i think i think you should be concerned in the way that um u.s companies are using ai to figure things out about you that you might not want to share um, so, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the early uses of, of AI in, uh, in retail uh, was by Target. And when they started doing advanced data analytics, they realized that they could analyze young women's purchasing habits and tell whether they were pregnant even before the women realized they were pregnant. And there was a really funny privacy case because, of course, you know, they started sending pregnancy offers to some girl's house. Her father saw it. Uh, and confronted her, big arguments ensued, lawsuit ensued, invasion of privacy. Uh, I think it was settled out of court by Target. Uh, and as a result, they decided to change their procedures. Okay, now you might wonder, well, what did they do to change? Did they stop, uh, you know, invading people's privacy and using the, the pregnancy determination to, to change what they sent? No. What they did was they decided to send it with a whole bunch of other random stuff, so you couldn't tell that they were targeting you for your pregnancy, even though that was a fundamental product of their, uh, you know, advertising and sales campaign.
1: So okay, but know, how's it's, that it's... different from say, you know, the preventative medicine stuff we were talking about, where monitoring is happening and companies on, you know, on your behalf are sending you notifications for your for your healthcare. Uh, As I recall that story, by the way, the father was actually, he actually ended up apologizing to Target because he got angry at them until he found out that his daughter was indeed pregnant, at which point (laughs) he withdrew the complaint. Maybe I got that story wrong. I guess the point there is, you know, companies are going to use this to serve us, right? Um, And yeah, it is. We're giving up information. They're surveilling us. There's no question about that. Is that necessarily evil?
0: Um, You know, I think it can be taken too far. Um, and I think that if you start to have, for example, uh, government agencies and police that uses it, uh, to, um, uh, police speech, um, you know, it, it's, so we're seeing some of the edges of that use in the Uyghurs and, uh, you know, in China, for example, uh, where that that's really troublesome, but, you know, you get to Shanghai, you get to Pudong, uh, you get to the, you know, the higher end, uh, design and, and technical areas, uh, it's invisible. You don't see it.
1: Tell me, what are the things that we should be concerned? Like, so for instance, a lot of people are worried that robots are going to steal their jobs or that AI is going to make certain skills uh, easily replaced or commoditized. Is that something we need to really take seriously? Where should we be concerned? You know,
0: I, I do think we absolutely have to take it seriously, but, but I think we should be worrying about the right things. Yeah. You know, the, the, I think that there are some obvious changes, like just in the last three or four months, uh, the explosion of these new generative AI tools has a lot of people spooked. And if you're not familiar with these tools, these are tools which uh, have been trained on a huge data set of you know, many images from the internet, along with the captions that are in them. Uh, and you can type in a prompt in text, like a uh, uh, young man on a surfboard uh, in Santa Monica, in the style of uh, uh, of Ishikawa, and, you know, with wearing the a Wearing cyberpunk Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, with cyberpunk uh, Los Angeles in the background or whatever. Um, and, uh, and it will generate, you know, professional grade art, you know, from yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's an astounding tool. And so, you know, yeah. your first thought is, wow, graphic artists are screwed. Uh, and it's true. You know, the the, the standard design shop is going to look very different in six yeah. months than it did last year.
1: Yeah, the clip um, art business but, and the stock photo business are over, right? That, that's the end yeah. of them.
0: Should we be concerned? It, it's more really, well, you know, I think... Um, but but let's let's scope the concern. The concern is, yes, you don't have people laboring away at kind of, uh, I'd say, the bottom tier of the design shop that they earn barely more than, you know, minimum wage uh, to do, you know, to crank out, you know, day after day of art, you know, with a lot, not a lot of growth opportunity. Mm-hmm. But now you have a new set of tools where everyone that has Photoshop now can generate professional grade
1: art without a yeah. studio or an agency. And it's not just Uh, art, right? It's also video and 3D. And so what they're saying is that marketers are going to be able to generate 10x the amount of content for one-tenth of the price. That sounds like a net win. Where's where's the problem?
0: Well, the the problem, of course, is if you happen to be in advertising agency it's it's depending on that that, that 10 instead of the one. So now you've got a company that's one-tenth the size. Not necessarily. I think you can do 10 times as much. Yeah. With the people that you have. Uh, you might have right. slightly different people. So you know, right. now you've got a prompt engineer instead of a low end graphic artist. But, okay,
1: there's, uh, a, there's another aspect of this that I want to ask you about because I get it that this is going to displace or cause artists and designers to change how they work, but it's also a tool that's going to augment their skills to, to Brett's point about right. augmenting and everyone's skills. skills. But but yes. now I want to ask a different question because one of the things I've noticed is that. Um, My Facebook feed has been filled with friends who are (laughs) adopting these tools and posting all their images. And I can see the progress, right? In a matter of weeks, people start to get real, maybe just a week, they get much better at making images, which means that the AI is actually training them. It's not just that we're teaching AIs how to think about humans, or better yet, we're teaching the AI how humans use language to describe images, which is a hard thing for most people to do. We get better at that. But the AI is also teaching us how to write better and better prompts. And so in a weird way, this is like conditioning us on a mass level to accept AI in our lives and learn how to coexist with AI. And I've thought about that because I don't think many people are considering that when they (laughs) devote hours of their time to cranking out images of, you know, Warcraft kind of conflicts or any kind of sci-fi scenario, whatever you see people doing
0: It's it's a fantastic evolution, you know, and and it's a co-evolution, right? Because, you know, the the current generation of tools is training us. And at the same time, you know, it's hard to imagine that this trend is only like 45 days old. And and we already see billion dollar companies emerging from it. It's just amazing. And hey, it's so funny, I,
1: I'm, uh, I've been asked to do a thing for a group on the future of, of, of consumer experience. And so I was thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, a lot of people hate a lot of companies like, you know, banks and credit card companies, even healthcare companies. Uh, there's a long list of companies that we don't really like, and the consumer experience is pretty bad. But I thought, what is the most hated kind of company in the world? And I realized, oh, I know there is one. We've been conditioned since birth to fear AI because of movies like <laughs> 2001 Space Odyssey and Terminator. It's just an ingrained in every person who's ever watched a movie that AI is something evil. It's the opponent. It's going to displace you. It might try to kill you. And what these software systems are doing, these, these generative systems like Dolly 2, uh, Mid-Journey and, and uh, Stable Diffusion, among others, what they're really doing is conditioning us to like AI and be delighted by AI. And this is the yes. most amazing CX yeah, yeah, transformation yeah. I've ever seen because they're 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 getting millions that's, of people to generate images and then share them gleefully with their friends, say, look what the AI did for me. Honestly, I find this an yeah. astounding achievement for the technology well, industry. You know, like the social and, I, and I area. think it's
0: and I think it's like the tiniest glimmer of what's possible. I mean, <laughs> think about the impact of uh embedding all of that information in education. And tuning it to your preferences and your history and what it knows of you and what you know, uh, and and because you know, I think there's a there's a subtlety. There's a great application that came out um, of one of the Stable Diffusion uh, kind of API writers, uh, where they hooked up a robot to it, and they would show it a table where you could scatter objects, and the goal of the robot was just to arrange the objects how it saw fit. And so if you scattered a bunch of like plates and napkins and and forks and stuff, it would basically just set up the table setting in a proper Victorian array because that's what it expects. But think about that. That's just using the stable diffusion of how do I use the experience of what I've seen to guide what I should do now? Okay, mm-hmm. that's profound. That's not just images and words. That right. is it can figuring work out what so is proper, what's areas. appropriate, yeah. and planning for the future. So, you know, that future planning is huge, and the applications are endless. Uh, and so, think about education, think about healthcare reform. Um, I think that we're just seeing the very beginnings of AI that can
1: imagine a better you and help you get there. Yeah. Absolutely. Wouldn't you love it if we could apply this to government? And maybe our government make better decisions, better policies, <laughs> and maybe yes. the, the
0: trade trade issues would go away, and we could all enjoy our abundance.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I think I'm more of that school of thought. But uh, so, Philip, we would like to wrap up with sort of a big question about the future. Um, so let me let me ask you this: you know, looking out, and you can get a sci-fi and as futuristic as, as you want here, but looking at twenty, thirty even 50 years, you know, what makes you excited about the future? What do you think is going to change the future of humanity?
0: Well, I think there's going to be a few big changes. One, I think space is going to become more accessible. I believe that, uh, I hope that uh, many of our wars of acquisition will abate uh, and we can have new levels of cooperation internationally. Um, I don't know that we'll get all the way to the Federation of Planets in thirty years, but, uh, but even I the think culture, that,
2: uh, <laughs> even the culture series, like, would be good, right?
0: Yes, exactly.
2: Um,
0: and I and I think that um, you know we're going to go a long way to eliminating diseases that plague us today, uh, and our ability to uh, you know detect them early uh, and treat them when they emerge. Um, And I think the the biggest, most rapid area of change right now I see is in engineering with biology. So using DNA synthesis and design uh, to engineer living things that do useful stuff for us, including ourselves.
2: Well, Philip, it has been a fascinating journey into the future. We thank you for joining us. I feel like this this is the first show where I felt like we needed an extended mix, another like 20 or 30 minutes <laughs> we could have done with that, particularly on the AI conversation. But that just leads us to suggest that maybe we should have you back at some time in the future. So thank yeah, you well, for well, uh,
0: I would be honored. Great. Thank you, Joe. Great fun. Always a great
2: that's it for The Futurist this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you like the show, um, you know, don't forget to put us out a five-star review, uh, You know, tell your friends about it, post about us on, on social media. But just before we wrap it up, uh, Philip, how do people follow you and, and keep in touch with some of your uh, Yeah, they,
0: they, can, uh, they can follow me on Twitter at my last name, Alvelda, A-L-V-E-L-D-A, at twitter.com. Fantastic. Or twitter.com slash Alvelda, I should say. And you're on uh, LinkedIn, I presume? Yeah, as well, yes. Philip L. There's only one in the US, so easy to find. Very easy, easy to
1: find. So thank you for that. Great um, fun to have you on the show. It. What a feisty conversation. Thanks, both of you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can, we can have round two about China anytime, Robert. I got
2: lots more for you on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you next week on The Futurist. Until then, we will see you in the
1: future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.
0: Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore Tech News on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn.com forward slash company forward slash Irish tech news. On Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash Irish And on TikTok, TikTok.com forward slash at